Okay, good evening everyone. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started uh, with the profundity of the Proverbs. And uh, we stopped at verse 5 last week, so we're going to pick it right up at verse 6. But before we get into the uh, lesson, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer and just uh, review very quickly our memory verse for chapter 1. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again for the changing of the weather and uh, that uh, uh, you've kind of held the rain off. The skies may be a little bit gray today, but Lord, we just thank you for the uh, mild temperatures that are out there. We thank you, Lord, for everybody who's been able to come out and be with us tonight for our uh, Wednesday night Bible study. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would just open up our hearts and open up our minds that we may receive and understand your word and be able to apply it to our hearts and to our lives and to our minds. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Proverbs 133 says, But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. So that's our uh, memory verse for chapter 1, and we're going to have plenty of time to uh, memorize that. So let's begin with uh, verse 6. It says in the New American Standard Bible, to understand a proverb, a figure, the words of the wise, and their riddles. So the first seven verses of Proverbs chapter 1 is just sort of like an introduction, a, a prologue, a preface, if you will, to the entire book of Proverbs. It gives us the purpose and the meaning of why Proverbs was written. So we already went through the first five verses, so I won't rehash that. But verse 6, to understand a proverb and a figure. So we'll just kind of take that part of the of verse 6 and kind of go with it. Uh, so we, we know what a proverb is. A uh, proverb is, you know, a positive verb, a positive action, a pro-verb. It's, uh, you know, it's a pithy saying that, that gives us a life lesson. And to understand or to comprehend uh, the meaning of a proverb and a figure. Now, this word figure in the King James, I think you'll have the word interpretations. Now, this is a very interesting Hebrew word. Uh, it, it, in, in the New American Standard, it's translated as figure. Uh, and in King James, it's interpretations. I'm not sure what it is in other uh, translations. But if you dig into the Hebrew meaning of, uh, of the word uh, that's translated as figure or interpretations, it actually means satire. Now, we all, we all know what satire is, right? Satire is a form of comedy. It's uh, being satirical. It's, it's kind of um, uh, making fun of, of something in order to make it entertaining, palatable, or to bring across a point. So there's a, a form of comedy called satirical comedy. It's, uh, so satire uh, in, in, in the Hebrew is a style of teaching uh, which implies exaggerations in order to make a point. So an exaggeration to make a point would, would be is if it was raining outside. Uh, some people would say, man, it's raining to beat the band. Well, that's just a saying that we have. Or they say, man, it's raining like cats and dogs out there. Now, that's kind of a satirical uh, or an exaggerated way of saying it's raining really, really hard. <laughs> it's a lot of rain. It's, it's like a torrential rain outside. But we know that, that literally, it's not literally raining cats and dogs. We understand that. It's a figure of speech uh, that we understand within our culture. So if somebody was to say that, nobody would be running outside saying, Oh my goodness, where's all the cats and dogs? Nobody would expect cats and dogs to be falling from the sky. We understand that. It's an exaggeration to bring across the point that it's raining extremely hard. So that's what this means, to understand a proverb and a figure, uh, to understand um, satire, to understand an interpretation, to, un to understand an exaggeration, uh, to understand um, you know, an idiom or, or an, an, an analogy or an allegory. Uh, another thing that uh, is an exaggeration, like uh, let's say that um, I go past 30 minutes preaching, and maybe inside your head, you're looking at your watch and you're like, Man, Pastor Chris is taking forever. Well, literally, I'm not literally taking forever to preach. But that's, it's an exaggeration to bring across a point to say, hey, he's preaching a really long time. Or somebody might say, he's long-winded today. 
So, uh, the, but we, we understand those figures of speech. And so just as we have figures of speech in English, uh, every culture has their figures of speech in Hebrew and in Greek and things like that. So that's what it's talking about. It's talking about understanding um, these figures of speech that we have in our language and in our culture and try to unravel them and to draw meaning out of them, uh, meaning that we can apply to our life. Now, uh, the word figure or the word interpretation, as I said, means satire, but it also means it, has, it brings an implication of taunting. Taunting. Now, it sounds kind of strange to use taunting as a way of teaching, but if anybody's been in the military, that's a very effective way to train, is to taunt. Because, you know, if the drill sergeant is taunting the cadet, then he's starting to lose face and become embarrassed in, in, in front of all of his peers and in front of all the other soldiers. So it makes him, it makes him determined to try harder. It makes him to want to push himself to prove that drill sergeant wrong. My, look at that guy. He's such a sissy. He can't even do 20 push-ups. And the guy's struggling. He's like, oh, yeah. And so he tries even harder to get those 20 push-ups in. He's being taunted. He's being made fun of to push him in order for him to achieve what the drill sergeant wants him to achieve. So taunting is an educational tactic uh, meant to engage emotion and to, um, and to uh, force someone to really think. So when you're being taunted intellectually, uh, you, you're, you're being forced to think a little bit harder on the matter, think a little bit harder on the subject. Now, in, in Bible college, there's, there's a few times where the professor was using that tactic of taunting, not to be mean or not to be cruel. We often think of taunting in that way, but taunting in a way as to goad or to provoke, to make somebody think harder. And uh, so sometimes that, that, that takes place. So that's what figure means. Uh, that's what the word interpretation means here. To understand a proverb and a figure uh, or an interpretations. Um, now let's move on. Uh, the second half of verse 6 says, The words of the wise and their riddles. The words of the wise and their riddles. Now, riddles, uh, in other translations, it says dark sayings. I think that might be in the King James. Dark sayings. So that's very interesting, too, in and of itself, is... Um, the words of the wise and their riddles or their dark sayings. So that Hebrew word for dark sayings or that Hebrew word that's translated as riddles means a puzzle, a riddle, an enigma, a parable, a maxim, an oracle, or a poem. So it has a lot of meanings. So dark sayings... I think in the King James, what, what the King James was trying to, what it was trying to bring across by translating it dark sayings is, you know, how like uh, at dusk, I hate driving at dusk, right when the sun goes down. It's not completely dark, but yet it's not light. And everything seems to blend together. And you can't really differentiate the road from the, from the berm of the road or the shoulder of the road. And, and, and it's like the, the bushes and the rocks all kind of blending together. And it makes it really hard to see deer and animal that come, you know, that jump out in front of you. You have to be really, really careful. I would rather it be pitch black and be going by my headlights than, than to be driving at dusk. Because at least the headlights, it illuminates what's ahead of you, and you can see it pretty clearly, at least as far as the headlights go. But when it's dusk, everything just kind of turns like an orange-gray, and you can't hardly see anything. Everything blends together. There's no definition. There's no sharp edges or lines that you can differentiate objects and things. And so that's what it means by dark sayings. It's a saying, but you don't quite grasp it. You don't quite see it. You, quite, you don't quite understand it. It's a little bit fuzzy. It's a little bit gray. And you have to sit and think about it. And it's also translated in the New American Standard as riddles. Now, a riddle, you know, naturally, when somebody gives you a riddle, you, you don't come up with the answer right away. You have to think about it because it's a mind puzzle. And, you know, I'm a big Batman fan. Batman is like one of my all-time favorite uh, superheroes. And one of his arch nemesis was the Riddler. 
And so he, uses, he used riddles in his crimes, and he gave Batman and Robin clues through riddles on where he was going to strike next or what, what his plan was or what he was going to do. And so it was Batman and Robin's job to try to figure out these riddles, to get the clues from those riddles to figure out where he's going to strike next and try to stay one step ahead of the Riddler. And so that's what it means by dark sayings or riddle. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a mind puzzle with words that you have to unlock and try to figure out. So that's what it means by dark saying. Uh, and I also said it's an enigma, a parable, uh, a maxim, an oracle, or a poem, or a song. And that's kind of interesting too. Because sometimes, uh, as a teenager, one thing that I love to do is listen to music and read the lyrics as I was listening to the music. Because... When somebody writes a song, they write from their heart and they write from a personal experience. So you may not always know or understand what that person is saying because they may be writing about a personal experience that you don't know about. You, you can't understand it because you haven't been in your shoes, but maybe that song means something to the writer and it may mean something else to you because you may take it in a different way. It may relate to you and, and, and you may get a different meaning or a different interpretation out of that song. And it's kind of interesting because in Bible college, I wrote a lot of poetry. That was one of my favorite things to do. And that's one thing that attracted me to Pam was she was the only girl that could read my poetry and get exactly what I was saying. She could read between the lines. She could take my poetry and decipher it and get the exact meaning of what I was trying to say. It was hard to find a girl that could do that. So I was pretty impressed. I'm like, okay, I got a smart gal here. I need to hang on to her. And I remember when we weren't even dating, we were just friends, and we were going on this missions conference. And so the Bible College got this big old bus, and we were going down to this big old mission conference. So we decided to sit together on the bus and pass the time. Well, in the middle of the bus ride, she decided to go to the back of the bus and sit with somebody else, to sit with another guy. Of course, I started getting jealous. But I'm thinking to myself logically, okay, why am I jealous? We're just friends. That should have been my first hint that I was falling in love with her, right? Because I started to get jealous. I had no reason to be jealous. We were just friends. You know, she wasn't my girlfriend. We weren't going steady. We had no commitments, but I was jealous. So I thought, mm, yeah, I'm going to write a poem. So I wrote a poem called Jade. You know, because, you know, the green-eyed monster of jealousy. Jealousy is often portrayed as green. So I wrote a poem and I entitled it Jade. So as soon as I got done with the poem, I walked back there and I handed it to her and the guy that was sitting next to, to her. And the guy was reading it. And he's like, whoa, man, like this is really deep. And I'm thinking to myself, you idiot, it's about you. <laughs> and Pam read it. And she slowly lifted her eyes and she gave me a glare because she knew exactly what I was saying with that poem. <laughs> so that's what that word uh, riddle or dark saying means. So verse six, to understand a proverb, a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now verse seven, and this will com uh, complete the prologue or the introduction or the preface to the book of Proverbs. And verse seven shows us how to apply the purpose of the Proverbs spelled out in verses one through six. So verse seven is teaching us how to apply the introduction, the preface, the prologue, the meaning of the Proverbs to our life. So verse seven says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, this word fear has been often greatly misunderstood within religious circles. You've always heard that saying, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And in our Western mindset, when we think of fear, we think of the knee-knocking, bone-shaking, trembling, oh my goodness, fear. Like the kind of fear you get when you go through a haunted house or you're watching a horror uh, 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 show or something. That's the kind of fear that you think of. But this is not what this uh, particular Hebrew word means, this word fear. The word fear in Hebrew, this particular word, is uh, yerah, which means a reverential respect and awe. It means reverence, and it means respect, and it means awe. Now, to me... This type of fear would be a perfect descriptor for my father. Now, my father was a godly man. He loved the Lord, and I loved him. And I was never afraid that he was going to beat me because he was a good father. And now that's not to say he didn't give me a spanking because he spanked me a couple times. 
And I was fearful of those spankings. <laughs> you know, I dreaded them. I didn't want, I didn't want to, uh, for him to spank me. But um, I had a love for my father, so I was never afraid to approach him. I was never afraid to hug him. I was never afraid to spend time with him. But I feared him in a reverential way, in a respectful way, because I knew if I crossed my father or did something against his will, against his rules, against his wishes, something that disappointed him or something that hurt him, I knew I was going to have to deal with the consequences of that infraction. And so the fear came, the knee-knocking type fear came when I went against my father's rules and wishes and his expectations because then there came consequences, there came punishment, correction, wrath. And like I said, my dad was pretty good with the hand and he was pretty good with the belt. <laughs> so there was a reverential and respectful uh, fear that I had for my father. Now, as a teenager and I got older, I'm not proud of this, but I badmouthed my mom one time. Uh, I, I called her a name I shouldn't have called her, but I said it under my breath thinking she didn't hear me, but she heard me. And you know what she said? You wait till your father gets home. Oh my goodness. My stomach sank. The butterflies was just flipping around in my stomach. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I was a teenager, but I knew my dad could really tear me a new one when he got home. And I was afraid for when my father got home because I knew I was going to face his punishment, his correction, his wrath. And so there was a reverential fear. And so it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, you know, it's, it's this reverential respect. Um, I remember when I went to Nigeria and I met a bona fide real life king for the first time. Somebody that was of royal descent, somebody that was in a kingship from eons uh, past. You know, his father was king and the father before him was king and he had a dynasty. He was he was the king of the Ibu people. Eze Chukwimeka Eri. He actually came from one of the lost tribes of Israel. He came from the tribe of Gad, from Gad's son Eri. And Eri is still their last name. So when somebody says, you're going to meet a king today, I was sitting in the back of the car on the way to the palace and I started getting the butterflies in my stomach. Now, I wasn't afraid that this king was going to yell at me or punish me or throw me in the dungeon or anything like that. But there was this fear that rose up because it's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be in the presence of royalty. I'm going to be in the presence of a, a, a real king, somebody who has nobility, somebody who has royal blood, somebody who has a, a famous lineage. He has authority. He has power. And so there was a fear that came along with that, uh, mingled with excitement. So it was a reverential and a respectful fear. And that's the type of fear that, that we're talking about here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think today we're missing that. We're missing that fear of God. Now, I'm all for people talking about love, and I'm all for people talking about grace, because they don't want people to have the misconception that God is up there waiting for us to mess up, and as soon as we do, he's going to squash us like a bug. They're trying to dispel that um, misnomer of Christendom and try to get that out of people's minds, which, yeah, that's great. But... We, you know, we, we can't say that God is all love and all forgiving and all this. Like, you know, we mess up and he's like, there, there, pats us on the head. I'm just going to wink at your ignorance because you didn't know any better. That, you know, we, sometimes if you go too far with the love thing and, and, and with the grace thing, you get a, a more skewed picture of who God is. There's got to be a balance. So, you know, I think we need, I, I think that one of the problems is, is we don't properly understand what the fear of the Lord is and how to fear the Lord properly. When people say fear the Lord, they think of this knee-knocking, bone-shaking, and, you know, scared kind of thing, but it's a reverential, respectful fear. And we've lost that in our society, and the proof of that is we, you know, students no longer fear teachers. You know, young people no longer fear the police. They will get in the police's face and tell a policeman off, and who cares if I get put in handcuffs? That's, a, that, that's something to be proud of nowadays. Hey, man, I got thrown in jail because I cussed out a cop or something. There's no fear because in, in, in days past, when somebody wasn't an authority figure, you, you respected them, but there was a fear along with that because, man, if I, if I cross the line or I do something wrong, I used to be afraid of my teachers. Not that they were going to beat me, but I was afraid of the correction and the punishment that came if I messed up. 
but I respected them. They told me to sit down, I sat down. They told me to go to the office, I went to the office. And even still today, I'm a grown man, 40-something years old, and I'm driving down the road, and if I look in my rearview mirror and see uh, flashing lights in my rearview mirror, I automatically get afraid. The butterflies start coming, oh my goodness, it's a cop. Was I speeding? Did I break the law? And then he zooms right past me because he's following somebody else. I'm like, That's a reverential, respectful fear because there is a respect of authority. And people have lost respect for God because they no longer adhere to his authority. Who is God? He probably doesn't even exist. What does he have to do with me? I don't have any reason to fear. And so people don't fear God anymore. They don't fear or respect authority anymore. And that's what we need to get back to in our Western society is a healthy, reverential, respectful fear for authority and reverence for authority. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And there's something to be said there. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Because when you're young and foolish and stupid and you have no respect for authority, that's when you get yourself in trouble. That's when you try to deck a cop or try to cuss out a cop. That's when you try to go against your teacher or your parents and you get put in juvenile detention. You start doing things and foolish bad things start happening to you. But if you begin to fear them, then you gain knowledge. Oh wow, if I do this, then this will happen. But if I don't do this, then this positive thing will happen. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, so okay, we'll just, we'll just take that right there. Uh, so we already discussed what fear is. Now it's interesting because it says the fear of the Lord. And maybe in your Bible, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, there's a reason for that. Now, if it's lowercase, or maybe capital L and lowercase O-R-D, it may be a Hebrew word such as, um, uh, such as Adonai, which is, is the Hebrew word for Lord. Um, there's different names and titles attached to God. But when you see capital L-O-R-D, that is God's personal name. Many people don't know that God has a personal name. They just think God's name is God. They think God's name is Lord. God and Lord are not names. They are titles. You know, just as, uh, you know, like if you're talking about royalty from, from England, you know, uh, Lord, Lord Beaverbrook of Sussex or something like that. You know, he was a Lord. That's a title given to him. So God and Lord are titles, but when you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's God's personal name. And his name in the Hebrew, we don't truly know how to pronounce it because it's so sacred and so special that it was only pronounced once a year in the tabernacle and in the temple during the Day of Atonement. So the only people on the planet who know how to correctly pronounce God's name are the Levites of the, of the, of, of the house of Israel. Of, of, of the Israeli people. They are the priestly clan. They are the priestly tribe. They're the ones who worked in the temple and worked in the uh, tabernacle. So they're the only ones who could pronounce the name. And because the name was so revered and so respected, it wasn't spoken by the common people. They would replace it with, with titles like Adonai or El Shaddai, which means the Almighty. And a popular, you may hear me say this once in a while, uh, you know, uh, it, it, the, the Hebrew word, they'll say Hashem, which Hashem literally, literally, literally translates the name. So that's what it means. Because when you say Hashem, I'm directly referring to God's personal name without saying it. Because I have so much reverence and respect for it, I don't say it. So it's kind of like respect for uh, elders or respect for adults. Um, you know, I never, like, I never called my friend's parents by their first name. I always called them Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. And that was out of respect. So I didn't say their first name. It's almost as if their first name, I had to be on, uh, I had to be an adult like them, or I had to be a peer or of the same age to be able to have the privilege to say their first name. But that's not the way it is today. We've kind of lost that respect and lost that uh, uh, cultural protocol in calling people Mr. and Mrs. and Sir and Ma'am. Uh, many people don't want to be called Sir or Ma'am anymore. And when you go to Bible college down in Tennessee, you learn to say sir and ma'am all the time. And during summer break, I'd go back to Ohio, which was a northern state, a Yankee state, and I would say sir and ma'am, and people would get offended. How old do you think I am? I'm no ma'am. Well, I meant no disrespect. <laughs> uh, so this, this is God's personal name. 
And um, in older translations, uh, there, is, there was a revision of the King James called the American, uh, the American Standard Version. And it's very hard to find in print. It's very rare. Uh, but it was done like in the late 1800s, I think. And, um, but they, they used Jehovah. Now, you've probably heard that Jehovah. But that, to me, that is a butchering of the Hebrew. Yeah, it's, it's more of a German pronunciation. But the thing is, Jehovah, there's no J sound in Hebrew. J, J doesn't exist. So we in the English will say Jacob, but it's not Jacob in Hebrew. It's Yaakov or Jacob. It's a, more of a y, y sound, like a Y sound. So there's no J sound. So Jehovah, it, not even close. So the best we can come up with based on um, the, my Hebrew name, my Hebrew name is Judah, but if you said my name in Hebrew, it would be Yehuda. So there's no J, it's Yehuda. So Judah and God's personal name has the exact same letters with the exception of the addition of the Dalit, which is the D sound, Yehuda. So some people believe that you pronounce it Yahweh. Yahweh. So it's interesting. You'll see here it's pronounced, uh, you, you'll see the letters Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. So in Hebrew, we read opposite. You know, so it's opposite of how we read. So, you know, we read from left to right, they read right to left. But it's interesting if you take the Hebrew letters Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, and you stand them up uh, vertically, what does that look like to you? It looks like a man, doesn't it? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because the yud looks like a head, the first hay looks like shoulders and arms, the vav looks like the body, the torso, and you have the last hay, which looks like hips and legs. So I think that's kind of interesting how, you know, the Hebrew word, when you stand it up vertically, looks like a man. Looks like the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's the whole, that's the whole point of the gospel, is that God robed himself in flesh and experienced life as a human being, as a man. He was 100% God in order to have the power to redeem us from our sins, but he was also 100% man to have that right to redeem us because he was our kinsman redeemer. And this follows right along with the Torah, with the law of God. Because when, there, when anybody was, was, uh, had to be sold into slavery in order to pay off a debt, a lot of times they would get a relative to, to buy them out of their debt, to, re, to buy them out of their slavery, out of their bondage, and they were called a kinsman redeemer. Or when a, a man died and he left a widow, and they didn't have any children, it was the responsibility of the nearest relative, usually the brother, to marry uh, that widowed uh, sister-in-law, produce a child, and that child would go by the name of the deceased brother. So we know that Ruth had a kinsman redeemer, and Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth wasn't even a part of the Jewish people, but she became part of the Jewish people by accepting the God of Israel and marrying into uh, the Israelite people and by following her mother-in-law, Naomi, right? So she was part of the commonwealth. And so she was kind of considered a citizen, so to speak. And um, because she was widowed, Naomi said, well, you know, I can't have you following me around here and be widowed. We've got to get you hitched. And that's the job of the kinsman redeemer. So she thought of Boaz. And of course, if you read the book of Ruth, Boaz ends up marrying um, Ruth. And guess what? Ruth is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She's in the lineage of Messiah. It was through Boaz that, you know, Jesse was born and then David was born and then on down until you came to Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah. So she was a Moabitess, but she became a Jewess. She became a Jew uh, through marriage and through commonwealth and through converting, uh, worshiping and accepting the God of Israel and no longer following the gods of the Moabites. Uh, so anyway, that bunny trail, but a, a well worth bunny trail, if you ask me. So I think that was uh, very good. So. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this word beginning is the Hebrew word barashit. Yes. Sometimes 
Yeah, because there's so many verses that say the beginning of wisdom, and I'm so used to saying, I'm so used to reading the, those verses, but you're correct. In this one, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and later on we'll read, it's also the beginning of wisdom. But we've read that passage so much, it sticks in my mind, it almost seems wrong to say knowledge, because it's only in a few verses compared to others where it says wisdom all the time. But good, thank you for correcting me on that. So it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That word beginning is the word barashit in Hebrew, and that's where we get the word Genesis from. So if you open up a Hebrew Bible, the first book will be called Barashit. We call it Genesis. So it's the same word. So it's the same word as Genesis 1.1. So it means the source. It means the origins of. So the fear of the Lord is the origin or the source of knowledge. So when we have a respectful, reverential fear of the Lord and reverential respect for him, he's going to open up our hearts and our minds and our spirit to where he'll open us up to his wisdom and to his knowledge. And that's the very start of it. You can't, you can't know knowledge. You can't know wisdom. You can't learn the Proverbs unless you fear the Lord. And fearing the Lord means that you love him, that you don't want anything to, to uh, you don't want to do anything to offend him or to cross him or to hurt him in any way. Now, you know, I said that I feared my father's belt, my father's hand, which I did. But you know what a greater fear was? A greater fear was hearing my parents say, I'm so disappointed in you. That, that kept me from a lot of sin. I remember one time I was spending the night with a friend and we had to do some sort of school project together. And as we were driving home, there was these teenagers staggering around in the street. They were drunk. And my friend's like, hey, I know who they are. We better take them home. So two of them got in the back seat. There was no more room. So one girl had to sit on my lap. And she wanted to make out with me. And I'm just getting all nervous. And I'm like, no, 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 I can't do this. And, and it was that, you know, I mean, I could have, right? I was a teenager. My hormones were raging at that time. The only person who would know was, would be my friend. He wouldn't tell anybody. The others were drunk. They wouldn't remember. But guess what? It was the fear of the Lord and the fear of disappointing my parents. If my parents found out, they would say, I'm so disappointed in you. You shamed our family. You shamed our name. Uh, and, and, and that's something that we don't understand in our modern day culture is, what, is the power of shame. We look at it as negative, as bad. But shame is a, uh, is, is a way to correct us and bring us back to where we need to be. Just recently, I have a friend who teaches at a public school in Ohio, and they recently had a bomb threat or some sort of threat. So school was on lockdown. A lot of kids didn't go to school. They traced the threat back to a student of Asian descent. So when his parents found out what he did and what he said, they took him out on the front porch and they shaved his head because in their culture, shaving the head was a sign of shame, a, sh a, a sign of dishonoring the family. So they took, they knew, uh, you know, what honor meant and, and what shame meant. So they publicly shamed their sh son by shaving his head on the front porch to say, you did wrong. We're disappointed in you. We want to be disconnected to your activities. You brought shame and dishonor on our family. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, oh, just to kind of close out that thought, I didn't want my parents to be disappointed in me. That was a greater punishment than what they could inflict physically or ground me from, from something because I wanted their love. I want, not that they wouldn't love me any less, but they would be disappointed when, in me. Our relationship would be broken for a time. And that's the same with the Lord. When we love the Lord and we're dedicated to him, we're going to keep his commandments, we're going to follow his word, we're going to walk in the footsteps of Yeshua, our Messiah, by walking and following in the Torah, in the commandments. And we're going to do our best to live uh, a, a way pleasing to the Lord as the Lord would expect. And it's that, that fear of shame and disappointment and hurting the Lord that sometimes keeps us from sinning, because it breaks that relationship. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, no, uh, of knowledge. So to have a, we have to have that fear of the Lord. In other words, we have to have a right personal relationship with the Lord in order to even start to comprehend knowledge and wisdom. And it says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, I want to read uh, something in the book of James. James chapter 1. 
beginning with verse 5 and reading through 8. Now, James is sometimes called the New Testament version of the Proverbs. I don't know if you knew that or not, but James is, is, like, is often associated with Proverbs. So it says in James chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously, without reproach, and it will be given to him. We don't have to be afraid to ask God for wisdom. He wants to give us wisdom. It's not like he said, mm, I don't know if I should give you wisdom or not, or how dare you ask me for wisdom, you little worm, you little flesh bag. No, God created us. God loves us. He wants us to, he wants us to know wisdom because if we know wisdom and if we have wisdom, we're going to have a closer and more personal, intimate relationship with him. And that's what he wants. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men generously. And without reproach, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't reprimand you for asking. And it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith. Let him ask in loyalty. Let him ask in trust. Let him ask in faith without doubting. Oh, doubting is a powerful suppressant of God's power. Even Jesus couldn't do miracles in certain cities. Why? Because he was weak? No, because the people didn't have faith. Faith is almost like you give God permission to do what he wants to do. Faith, belief, trust, that opens the door for God's power. And Jesus couldn't, uh, couldn't perform certain miracles because of that lack of faith. So it says, if you want wisdom, it says, uh, but let him ask in faith without doubting. Just like the man who had the demon-possessed son. Lord, if you, you know, your disciples tried to cast this demon out of my son, and it didn't work. If you can do anything, please help. And he says, if you can, don't you know who I am? He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Intellectually, we know God can do anything. So it's not hard for our brain to believe. It's hard for our heart to believe. That's where faith comes in. We have to believe with our heart. And totally release and believe with our heart. And if we have problem believing, it's okay. That's human. Say, Lord, I believe, but help on my unbelief. Let him ask, uh, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. If you've ever been on an ocean, the waves go back and forth, back and forth. They slap against one another. They crash into each other. They go one way and then they go the next. That's another way of saying being double-minded. And, and later, it says in, that a double-minded person is unstable in all they do. They can't make up their mind. They think one way and then they change their mind to another. And I, I know people who are double-minded and they live in fear and they live uh, without a satisfactory relationship with the Lord. They love the Lord. They're saved. They're going to heaven, but they're, but they're defeated in their life. They have no victory in their life because they have doubt, because they're double-minded. They can't make up their mind. You have to make a decision and go with it. And your decision is based on the Word of God. If the Word of God says so, bank on it. Don't be tossed about, mm, you believe it one day and don't believe it the next, or you think one way this time and think another. No, be consistent. But if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for one who doubts is, is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For, uh, for let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, we know that Solomon was you know, the wisest man on the face of the earth besides Jesus Christ himself, because God gave him wisdom to rule Israel wisely. God gave Solomon wisdom to, to, to lay out the book of Proverbs for us, a book that was meant for royalty, a book that was meant for princes and princesses, uh, to know how to be ambassadors and know how to carry on the royal line and how to and, and yet we have this book that we can glean from and that we can read and apply to our lives and gain so much. And so Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, is greater and wiser than Solomon. And I want to read just a couple of passages that kind of back that up. In Colossians 
It says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you look at verse 2, it's talking about Jesus Christ. It's talking about Yeshua the Messiah. And what it says about him in Colossians 2.3 is that in, in Christ, in, in Messiah, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to be knowledgeable. You want to be wise. You have to have a personal and intimate relationship with the Messiah. That's where it is. You can read Proverbs all you want. But if you don't have a, a relationship with the author of Proverbs, and I'm not talking about Solomon because Solomon got Proverbs through divine wisdom, through divine revelation, and he, he penned the book of Proverbs. So it comes directly from God. And who is the mediator between God and man? That's Yeshua. That's Jesus, the Messiah. That's where we get our knowledge. That's where we get our wisdom from. He's the one who opens up the gateways of knowledge and wisdom. And also in 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and in verse 24, but it says, but to, those who are, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And if you jump to verse 30, it says, but by his doing, you are all in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So even in Proverbs, yes, it's what we call an Old Testament book. Even in Proverbs, who is the center focus of Proverbs? Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah. And it, it, it talks about wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and it talks about wisdom as being there with God in the beginning. And we'll read later that it talks about how wisdom was there when he laid the foundations of the earth. He set the stars in place and all this kind of stuff. Well, who is wisdom? It says right here in the verses we read that wisdom is Jesus Christ. And what does it say in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Proverbs says that it was wisdom that made all things. But John helps us to understand who and what wisdom is because it, it points to Jesus Christ as being the creator. So he is the one that was, wis that was wisdom that was beside God when creation happened. And finally, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, in verse 42, it says, the queen of the south shall rise up in this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. Wow, what a God we serve. What a Messiah we serve. And it just blows my mind that... You know, that, that, that there are people who, who, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah but doesn't believe that he's divine. To me, that doesn't register. How can you think that? Because if he's just a regular old Joe, a regular old human being that's anointed, what does that mean? We follow enough men and enough human beings in this world. We have rulers and kings and presidents and, and prime ministers and dictators, and they all claim to be wise, but they're just regular men, and they sin and they fail us. So if Jesus Christ was just an ordinary man, I would not be following him today. To me, he has to be divine in order to be the Messiah. Because then what's the point of following a Messiah that's not divine? To me, there's no point. I might as well follow Buddha. I might as well follow Muhammad. I might as well follow uh, Donald Trump or Justin Trudeau or anybody else out there. They're just as good as the next guy. That's what separates Yeshua from all the other religions and from all the other leaders of the world. Is not, he was not only human because he had to be human to be our kinsman redeemer to fulfill the law. But he was also had to be divine in order to have the power to redeem us. And the power to, to give us wisdom. To, have, to give us that wisdom directly from God. Wow, what a mighty God that we serve. Okay. Moving on. So we're finally past uh, verses 6 and 7, and we're, go uh, we're getting into the rest of the Proverbs. And it's interesting. Uh, you might may want to make a, a little note that uh, verses 8 through 19 are instructions of a godly father. 
So verses 8 through 19 are instructions uh, from a godly father, but sandwiched in verses 18 through 19, there's a little section, uh, verses 11 through 14, which talks about uh, the voice of temptation and how temptation tries to draw us away from the Lord and draws us away from God. All right, uh, let me get back to the Proverbs here. So Proverbs, verse 8 It says, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Now, the word hear is that word that we talked about last week, and it's the word shema. Shema is one of the first Hebrew words that a a, a Jewish child learns. Because the John 3.16 of Judaism is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That word here is not just hear, not just to, to hear with your physical ear. It means to listen and to obey. So that word here, that word Shema has a double meaning. It means to hear and obey, to listen and obey, to listen and to put into practice. So we can say, listen. Put into practice, my son, your father's instructions. Now, the word father and mother here in the Hebrew uh, could be used in a literal sense or a spiritual sense. So, you know, even in the family of God, we have people that we consider our spiritual mothers and our spiritual fathers because they're older than us. They're wiser than us. Maybe they've taken us under their wing when we became a new believer and we look up to them. But in this sense, I believe it is a a physical sense because it is Solomon sitting down with his sons and teaching them uh, how to be good ambassadors for the kingdom. So he says, hear, my son, listen and obey. Listen and put into practice, my son, your father's instructions. And so that word instructions is the same word that was in verse 2. Now, if we go back to verse 2, let me try to find the the word for instruction here. Yeah, that word is musar. It's discipline. You're correct. So this particular word for instructions, hear my son, listen and obey, listen and put into practice my son, your father's instruction, your father's musar, your father's discipline. So it implies a training regiment that the father is putting in place for the sons to follow. Protocol. A code of ethics, if if you will. So that's the word for instruction is musar in this particular verse. And it says, forsake uh, not or do not forsake your mother's teaching. So the word forsake means to, to scatter, to spread, to disperse to desert. So this word forsake is actually a Hebrew military term, and it means to to abandon, to leave your post, to go AWOL. We know what AWOL is in, in the military, to be absent without leave, right? It means to retreat. So do not forsake, do not, do not abandon, uh, do not go AWOL from your mother's teaching. And this word teaching also means instruction, but it's the word Torah. And Torah is often translated as law. The law of Moses is the Torah. So it's often translated as law, but a better translation is instruction. And that's the way it's it's translated here. It says, um, do not forsake your mother's teachings. Do not forsake your mother's instructions. Do not forsake your mother's law. Do not forsake your mother's uh, um, instructions. Now, I think it's interesting that, you know, do not forsake your mother's Torah. Do not forsake your mother's law. And we have the law of Moses, and we have the Ten Commandments. What is one of the Ten Commandments? Uh, Yes, honor your father and your mother. And, And I always look at honor your father and your mother as a transitionary commandment because uh, you have the first, uh, the first set of commandments, which is commandments, but and and it designates man's relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You are not to make any graven images. I am the Lord your God. I'm the only one. So this is this is God. This is man's responsibility to God. This is how man can have a proper relationship with God. What God expects from man, and that's the first part of the Ten Commandments. Then you have honor your father and your mother, which transitions into the commandments that deal with man's relationship with man. 
man's relationship with each other because it's a transitionary commandment because who is our who ultimately is our father god he is our heavenly father honor your father and your mother and if you remember the last lesson i said that the holy spirit is in the feminine gender in hebrew so a lot of times in jewish mystical writings the holy spirit is is portrayed as a mother and 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 it and it and it displays the mother heart of god so honor your father and mother honor god the father honor the holy spirit and it also means literally honor your earthly father and honor your earthly mother so we have that and then uh that, that's just uh the apostle paul or i like to call him rav shaul goes further and in ephesians 6 1 he says uh children obey your parents in the lord for this is right and we know that he goes on to talk about how this is one of the only commandments with a promise that you're going to live long <laughs> right so now verse 8 it says hear my son your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching now it says here in the uh, notes in my uh, new american standard bible it says proverbs are frequently addressed to the young to warn them of the dangers that they by reason of their inexperience knowing nothing about know nothing about here and in the following verses the emphasis is upon training in the home as a means of moral protection it will prepare the young person against the temptations from immoral people and the ends which result. So, so far, does anybody have any questions or any comments? Heed. Yeah, listen and obey. That's an, it's often sometimes it's translated as heed. Yeah, that's a good way to put it too. Heed. All right, well, let's, uh, let's try to squeeze in verse 9 before we close her out for the night. Verse 9 says, Indeed, they are, graceful, they are a graceful wreath to your head and an ornament about your neck. So what is graceful? What is a graceful wreath around the head and an ornament around the neck? It's the father's instructions and the mother's teaching. So a wreath is a picture of a reward of a champion winning a fight or winning a race. It's a sim it's symbol of mastery or rulership. Now, today in the Olympics, they give out gold, silver, and bronze medals. My daughter, just uh, her team just won a volleyball tournament, and it's the first time in 40 years that the girls' volleyball team has won uh, a tournament for Tobik Valley. And I think that's awesome. And she got a gold medal. But back in the day, back in Roman times, back in Hebrew times, when somebody would win at a contest, they would get a wreath. And the wreath would be in the shape of a crown. And a crown represents respect, royalty. It represents mastery. It represents, you know. So, uh, you know, it says that, you know, your father's instructions and your mother's teachings will be like a graceful wreath upon your head. You will be a winner. You will be a champion. You will be a master. You will be a ruler. Because that's what a crown represents, right? So it'll be a crown for your head and an ornament about your neck. So uh, an ornament or a necklace. A lot of times uh, a family crest would be worn by royalty or nobility to show what family they come from. So uh, it, it, um, and, and it's almost like a signet ring. So a signet ring also had a family crest or it had the authority of the family. So the necklace, the ornament around the neck represents authority as well as the crown represents authority. So it kind of uh, symbolizes the, the, the same thing. And also it, it represents protection. An ornament around the neck, it represents protection. And what, makes me th what it makes me think of is an Indian choker. You know those necklaces that are made of bone that go around the neck? Well, Indian warriors, American Indian warriors would wear these, these chokers because it would protect them when somebody was trying to come and slit their throat in the middle of a battle in, in, in close quarters combat. Those bones would protect the jugular veins from being slashed. So in a sense, it says that the, the teachings of, of the father and the mother will be an ornament around your neck. It symbolizes protection. You're going to be protected because when an enemy attacks, he's going to go for the jugular. When a wild animal attacks you, where does he go? He goes for your neck every time. 
So it symbolizes protection. So if you listen to your father and mother, heed and listen and obey and put into practice their instructions and their teachings, it will protect you. It will be a symbol of authority and royalty and mastery, but it will also be uh, something, uh, it'll be protective. Okay, and uh, I'm going to read from 1 Peter really quickly, because I think this goes along really well with what we're talking about here. If I can find 1 Peter here. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4. And it says, And let not your adornment be merely external braiding the hair and wearing of gold and jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. So obviously, they're likening listening and heeding and obeying and putting into practice the instructions of the father and mother as a crown and a necklace. And we know what those things symbolize. We just talked about that. But of course, it's not talking about physical. It's talking about spiritual. It's talking about inwardly. And here, Peter reiterates how inner beauty is more important than outward beauty. Inner reputation is more important than outward reputation. And let not your adornment be merely external braidings of hair and wearing of gold and jewelry and putting on uh, of dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What attracts me more to a person is their spirit than how they look on the outside. I, my eye might be attracted to what they look like on the outside, and I might get a false impression on who they are and what they're like on the outside. You know, if they're all fancy and they're all dressed up nice and they're well-kept, I may think, hey, here's a person that's got it all together. And maybe when I meet them, they're snotty and rude and, and just brush me off. Well, that's not who I expected to be. And then sometimes we'll see a person that is in ragged clothes and their hair's unkempt. Maybe they got a wild beard going on. Think, wow, that guy must be homeless. He's, he must be crazy. But when we get to know that person, we think, wow, what a sweet and gentle person this is. I, this is the way it is with most bikers. I don't know if you've ever personally met a biker, but bikers have a reputation of being big and bad and mean and ugly. But most of them are giant teddy bears. I've met bikers before, and they have the most gentle and kind spirit you'd ever want to meet. And so that's, it's more important to, to, to have the inward beauty than the outward beauty, the inward adornments more than the outward adornments. Okay. Yes. Because doesn't it say in the prophecies that Jesus Christ, that there was nothing that would attract us to him? I think it says in Isaiah 53. That he, that, you know, he was, you know, there was nothing that would attract us to him physically. But he, but he attracted people because of his spirit. He was the friend of sinners, tax collectors, traitors, prostitutes, drunkards, the sick, the leper. All the undesirables of the world were attracted to Jesus because of his inner beauty, because of who he was on the inside, because of his love, because he came from God. All right, this is a good stopping point. So uh, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer, and we will pick up with verse 10 next week. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness and the depth of your word. And I just think it's so crazy that we spend an hour talking about three verses, three or four verses. And it makes me think of certain rabbis who spend their entire life studying Genesis 1-1. I mean, sure, they preach and teach and talk about other scriptures, but they study and, and they can't even get to the bottom of it. They can't exhaust the meaning of Genesis 1-1 because they spend their whole life studying it. And when they die, they leave a body of work behind that's unfinished because they couldn't come to the bottom of it. And your word is so deep, there's no end to it. We could read it over and over and over and get something different, more deep out of it each time. It's like a beautiful cut diamond that when we turn it a certain way, we get another form of its beauty. And we can see a different facet of it. 
And that's, that's the amazing thing about your word. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, as the word says. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for, for, for giving King Solomon the revelation to write Proverbs, that we can read it today. It was a book meant for royalty, a book meant for kings. And yet we, a common people, could read it and glean from the wisdom and apply it to our lives and become better believers, better ambassadors for Christ. I say that it was for royalty, but we are royalty because we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. We are a royal priesthood, as it says in the word. So we're supposed to be representing the kingdom at all times. And what a better way to learn and do that than the book of Proverbs. So Lord, as we go through the book of Proverbs, help us to know what it's trying to say to us so that we can be able to understand it and apply it to our heart and to our life and to our mind. May we never get bored or never get tired of it. Keep our spirits in line and in tune with your word. Make us hungry and thirsty for your word, that we can't get enough of it, that we can't stop reading it. Because we know that there's life in it. There's spiritual sustenance in it. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. And we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, thanks, guys. The Plaster Rock United Baptist Church. Come join us every Sunday morning at 11 a.m.